Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT news of the week. I'm your host, Rich Dravolino. I'm an editor with Gestalt IT. Joining me from across cyberspace is the one, the only, the networking nerd himself, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the show. Holy guacamole, Rich. It is a great day today because it is National Avocado Day. So I hope all of you out there are enjoying a nice slice of avocado toast or what guacamole or what, what avocados are really made for, which is chips and guac. Mm, delicious, delicious tableside chips and guac. All right, we're going to get the show started off with a little something we like to call news or not. This is where we have a bunch of news stories that we want to cover, but we don't have time to have a full discussion. So I give uh, Tom the decision if it's news or not and a one-sentence rebuttal. First up, uh, we have the uh, security researcher who helped stop the spread of the WannaCry ransomware, Marcus Malwaretech Hutchins, has been sentenced to time served and a year of supervised release in a U.S. court this week. Hutchins pled guilty to two charges of conspiracy to create and distribute the malware uh, uh, malware in April as a result of his work on the Kronos banking trojan. And this was uh, back uh, somewhat earlier in his career in his uh, wily youth. The judge in the case said Hutchins had too many positive things in his ledger since writing the malware source code to warrant harsher sentencing. Tom, getting off on time served for uh, the WannaCry savior, news or not? Uh, this is because I got really upset when they charged him in the first place. They, this should not have happened. He was doing legitimate work, and they wanted to hang this on somebody. And for him to have been in prison as long as he was, um, this is vindication for researchers. Yeah, and, and really, I, I think also an interesting, I don't know if it sets a precedent, but that the judge in the case very specifically was looking at his work as a security researcher and working to prevent malware going forward, um, you know, kind of as, you know, I don't know, again, what kind of legal precedent that has, but interesting that that was brought up for sure. All right, next up, uh, GitHub CEO Matt Friedman confirmed that the company is preventing users in Iran, Syria, and Crimea from accessing portions of its source code hosting service, citing sanctions uh, of the countries for violating U.S. export law. Users in the sanctioned countries cannot access private repositories and the GitHub marketplace, as well as maintain private paid organization accounts. Public repositories are still accessible. Uh, GitHub identifies users by IP address and payment history. Uh, so maybe problematic there. And they have an appeals process that requires uh, a government-issued ID proving residency along with a selfie to prove you're the person holding the ID, I guess. Tom, GitHub uh, blocking people, news or not? Nah? This is news because this is a big step for GitHub, and I don't like it. Um, we've done, we've had to deal with export restrictions on cryptography forever. You know, there were certain versions of Windows 2000 that couldn't be sent outside the country. Um, and now you're going to tell me that if you make somebody's no-no list, that suddenly we're going to blacklist all your GitHub repositories and things like that. Uh, I don't like where this is going. Yeah, and it puts a lot of developers in those countries in a weird space. It makes you question, you know, with changes in U.S. policy being perhaps there's some uncertainty about that, you know, what the, the long-term uh, implications of that for that service are. However, from a legal perspective, I wonder how much choice GitHub, now owned by Microsoft, has in this regard, or if they want to stay in good graces of government as well, being a big government customer. All right, next up, Microsoft finally revealed when Skype for Business Online will die. The happy date is on July 31st, 2021. Microsoft announced in 2017 that Microsoft Teams would eventually replace Skype for Business, but hadn't confirmed a kill date uh, until now. 
Skype for Business will continue to work, uh, but as of September 2019, new Office 365 users will not have the option to onboard to the service. Instead, they'll be directed to Microsoft Teams. No option there. The company also announced that calls between Teams and Skype consumer version will be supported in Q1 2020. So there may be a little bit of window there when, you know, use cases for Skype for Business uh, might not be met by Microsoft Teams. Tom, Skype for Business is a bane upon all mankind and its death can only be a good thing. But is it news or not? Uh, it's not really news because I think that the five users of Skype for Business that are left are already moving to Teams anyway. Um, this this is basically announcing if you haven't already gotten off by now, um, you've got two years to really do something. Um, I, I'm just happy to see it go. I think we should be throwing it a party later for its timely demise. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, next up here, Google and VMware announced a partnership that will see Google Cloud support for VMware Cloud Foundation to deploy and run hybrid clouds. The solution was developed by Cloud Simple, so not something developed by either of the two partners itself, and will offer access to the full VMware stack. Google will offer frontline support. Uh, this exists alongside Google's own existing Anthos hybrid cloud service. Google catching up on hybrid cloud here, Tom? News or no? Yeah, I think this is really kind of where they need to go in Google Cloud. I'm sure it works really well, but you are the third horse in a race where everybody is furlongs ahead of you at this point. So Google's got to start making some friends to make this happen. Yeah, and we actually got a, an interesting idea of how, where Google kind of is in the public cloud race that makes this move maybe a little bit more interesting or maybe makes a little bit more sense that we'll be talking about later in the show. Uh, before we get into our main discussion story, last news or not, Alibaba released its first processor core IP called the Zuntai 910. Apologies for anyone that speaks Chinese. Uh, it's based on the RISC-V open source architecture and is designed to work in edge computing and autonomous driving use cases. Alibaba plans to license the design to other chip makers and will release parts of the code for the processor on GitHub. Tom, one of the biggest tech companies in China and the world uh, starting to make their own silicon IP. News or not here? Uh, this is news, uh, especially if you work for Intel or AMD, because one of your not-on-your-radar competitors just basically released a free roadmap for their microprocessor. Um, I, okay, granted, you don't have a fab sitting around, but why would I pay Intel now when I can get what I need from Alibaba? And maybe cheaper. Well, I, I would think this was a more direct uh, slap in the face to ARM, especially you know, uh, given all the licensing kerfuffle that was going on with the Huawei export ban, uh, not being able to get the licenses for that. I, I would think this is also a, a hedge in the light of all of those uh, sanctions. You're not wrong. <laughs> All right. First up in our discussion, here, this was major news. Capital One announced uh, that a hacker had accessed about 100 million credit card applications, some of which included Social Security numbers and bank account numbers. Court records show that the FBI arrested Paige Thompson, who previously worked at Amazon, and charged her with computer fraud and abuse. Capital One said the hack will cost the company between $100 million and $150 million in the near term, but that the company says no credit card numbers or login credentials were compromised. Uh, most security numbers uh, and most of those 100 million uh, records didn't include social security numbers. I want to say the number was in the low 100,000s only, quote unquote only. Uh, based on a GitHub account tied to Thompson, the data might have been obtained through a misconfigured S3 bucket uh, going back to her former employment at Amazon. 
Tom, does it seem misleading to call these kind of data leaks hacks at this point? Uh, doesn't that take a little bit too much off the blame for just bad IT practices? Yeah, at this point, it's like saying I left the door unlocked to my house. So obviously, <laughs> it was a hack that someone got in. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't a hack. You're an idiot. Um, <laughs> now, th this actually should be a wake-up call for uh, people at Amazon. Um, guys, seriously, just start making the buckets secure by default. Deal with the support calls. Lock them down. Make people read a document that's 45 pages about how to act, how to create access to the bucket because you guys are getting black eyes. I mean, I saw something on uh, Twitter about this yesterday. They blacked out the name Amazon from the report and then made reference to S3 buckets and all this <laughs> other stuff. Like, we're not saying it's Amazon because we can't, but it's Amazon. And now, but Tom, to that point, is every cloud company equally complicit in this? It's just Amazon S3 is just a giant service that everyone kind of by default uses. So they get the most blame or are they particularly lax in their security procedures here? I don't I haven't used Azure enough to know kind of how they use their their storage services on the back end. Mm -hmm. But I think this really is, you know, you're. For the 800-pound gorilla, so everybody's coming after you. And if if it's a unique problem to Amazon, then that should be the first warning sign that you guys have a problem you need to fix. Making it easy to use does not always mean making it secure. I would think the theme of this year's or the next reInvent should really be about cloud discovery and figuring out where, you know, what you actually have in Amazon is a supremely valuable service. There are entire companies who exist because of that use. Um, and I know I know Amazon has some tooling around that, and you know part of it might just be education or whatnot. But I would think, in light of all of these misconfiguration, leads to massive data breach stories, and this is just the biggest in a long line of these we've seen just this year. That that would be a major focus for them uh, going forward. <laughs> All right, next up, the United States Justice Department, you know them as the old DOJ, approved the $26 billion merger of T-Mobile and Sprint. The DOJ approved the deal after DISH reached an agreement to acquire Boost Mobile, Virgin Mobile, and Sprint's entire prepaid business and access to some of Sprint's 800 megahertz spectrum in order to become a viable fourth carrier. Uh, if you don't already know, DISH has a lot of holdings in the 600 and 700 megahertz spectrum already, so this really gives them a ton of low-band frequencies there. Uh Dish uh, will also get access to at least 20,000 cell sites and hundreds of retail locations. Basically, anything that would be redundant as a result of the merger they'll get access to, which I'm assuming is a huge retail footprint right off the bat, as well as access to the combined T-Bubble network for seven years. FCC Chair Ajit Pai previously stated that he would not vote to block the deal. There are still, however, about a dozen states' attorneys general uh, filing one massive lawsuit to potentially block this. This will not stop the merger now going forward, but it may cause them to have to back out if that lawsuit uh, you know, ever becomes of something here. DISH is committing to deliver a 5G network capable of reaching 70% of Americans by 2023, and they have plans to light up their first 5G city by 2021. I saw their CEO was saying they're going to take this out in a more city-by-city city approach, and given that they can kind of greenfield the 5G, they don't have an existing 4G network they have to graft 5G onto, that allows them a little bit more latitude in that regard. DISH claims that failing to hit this uh, goal will cause them to make voluntary contributions to the U.S. Treasury of up to $2.2 I I don't know what that means. I guess they'll find themselves, sure. Uh, DISH has, again, ton of low-band spectrum to cover a lot of ground. Can they make a go of this, Tom? I don't think so. I mean, <clears throat> realistically speaking, the city-by-city -city rollout plan is essentially what Sprint and T-Mobile followed. They would concentrate in their tech hub areas, and they would build out from there. 
And that worked really well for them when cell phones were a novelty. But given the ubiquity of cell phones today, you cannot roll out city by city. So Boost Mobile was big to begin with. Um, it's probably, I, at the time, I thought it was an MVNO. So they've been you know, slowly growing customer base. But when you think about it, you think about AT&T, you think about Verizon, and now you think about, what are we going to call it? T-Mint, Spromobile, Sprobile, whatever. Yeah, exactly. The new T-Mobile. Um, ultimately, what happens is they have to have somebody else in the market to make it look like there's competition. But is there really competition? Probably not. Cricket and Boost Mobile, now Dish, are not going to overtake any one of those carriers anytime soon. Um, I don't. And the voluntary contribution thing, I'm sorry, I have something in my throat. Bribe. It's a bribe. Um, that's <laughs> really what it feels like targets, to me. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, look, we were one phone short. I guess we've got to pay the government two billion dollars. Oh, me. Oh, my. And, we'll and then they'll get acquired. Shareholder earnings and, uh, you know, our stock price will go up when we don't hit it because we've already paid for it. The uh, I'm I'm not quite as cynical about it. I mean, I do think they have a long road to go. Right. I, I'm encouraged mm-hmm. that they have the spectrum, and given that they can use the combined T-Mobile Sprint, the, you know, the new T-Mobile network for seven years, right? They're going to get the advantage of all of that 5G deployment right off the bat. It's all going to be, you know, one that guarantees cross compatibility at least early on between those two networks, whatever they build out. And two, 5G is kind of a terrible kludge right now. Like it can deliver gigabit speeds, but you have to be within like six blocks of a building uh, somewhere in downtown Chicago using, you know, millimeter wave, which has no viability outside of really, really tight deployments. So being able to, again, kind of use the sub uh, six gigahertz, uh, you know, kind of model of distribution, which is what they're using in South Korea and stuff like that. At least having that greenfield approach gives them the ability to to roll out some really interesting, potentially very high speed 5G in select cities and, and then still have that benefit of that network for a set period of time. The question then becomes, after that seven years, what does their network look like? You know, who knows? Something we do know is that Apple made it official and when it per- and it's purchased Intel's modem business for a cool $1 billion, or as I like to call it, one Instagram. As part of the deal, they get all of Intel's relevant IP for 5G, 4G, and, and all of their modem designs, and will take on 2,200 employees formerly working in the business unit. Intel had previously been supplying modems for iPhones, but has announced uh, that they were exiting the market back in April following Apple and Qualcomm's settlement of a patent dispute. Uh, according to analyst Ming-Chi Kuo, Apple will be releasing three 5G iPhones in 2020, but they don't predict they'll actually be using Apple-designed modems until at least 2021. They'll be using Qualcomm modems. Uh, I mean, one would assume. I don't know who other is, else is making mobile 5G modems at this point. So, Tom, uh, be, you know, where does this put – does this put Intel in a better position in terms of, hey, we got rid of this thing that we couldn't make succeed – we're going to make Apple make it successful or use it as leverage for future patent disputes with Qualcomm. Is this addition by subtraction for Intel? Yeah. Intel needed to get rid of this because there weren't, there wasn't any value from this. And the fact that you don't know what kind of modem is in your phone right now tells you exactly why this was not a big deal for them. Um, the last time I heard any arguments about using Qualcomm versus Intel chipsets was back when the uh, iPhone, I think it was the iPhone 10 came out and people were trying to figure out which one was the faster one. And it was like, you know, 
3% difference, but that 3% matters to somebody. Now, this is this is leverage. This is absolutely positively leverage because when Qualcomm had Apple over a barrel, you saw what happened. Apple had to sign up and you know get rid of that mountain of $100,000 bills that sits in Tim Cook's <laughs> office. Now, let, let's just say for the sake of argument that, that Apple really never gets this to work the way they want this to because shrinking these things down to fit in iPhones is going to be crazy. Let's just say they do it in iPads. Let's say all iPads and maybe the new ARM Mac that will have 5G uplinks. Let's say that that's all Apple's ever gets to make this work. Well, they've proven that they can use the technology and they've reduced the spend that they have with Qualcomm. And now Qualcomm will think twice because if we had a hard time making it work because we didn't really invest in it, could you imagine what would happen if the choices were pay Qualcomm another $700 billion for their whatever in a patent lawsuit or just spend $6 billion and make it work ourselves? <laughs> um, if I was Qualcomm, I would be very, very hesitant to say anything crossways about Apple going forward um, because these are folks, well, now that Johnny Ive's gone, we can actually make things work instead of making them small and pretty. <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that of, yeah, maybe this isn't just a smartphone play. You know, we saw in Apple's most recent earnings that, uh, you know, again, we're seeing pretty precipitous decline in iPhone revenue, but we're seeing services go up, iPad go up, even the Mac uh, went up like, I think, a half a billion dollars, which is insane for any other company. But Apple, you know, you're looking at, uh, you know, like $15 billion of revenue outside of the iPhone that theoretically could benefit from this. I hadn't even thought about that. It could also come to, you know, because even if Apple is creating their own modems. I'm assuming there's still some IP they're going to have to pay FRAND licensing to Qualcomm to. Again, though, being you know having that load of IP gives them a little bit more wiggle room, better negotiating status, and it only costs them a, a billion dollars, which, again, for Apple is, uh, you know, that's just one Scrooge McDuck vault out of the Scrooge McDuck vault of Scrooge McDuck vaults that Tim Cook has. All right, Tom. I got a Wi-Fi story for you. I think uh, you're going to like it. In a petition to the U.S. FCC, that's the Federal Communications Commission, Apple, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, HP, Qualcomm, Intel, Broadcom, and Marvell, don't be left out, Marvell, I'm sorry, uh, asked to, for approval of a new very low-power Wi-Fi category that would allow unrestricted use of the 6 gigahertz spectrum for short point-to-point -point connections. The letter suggested connections uh, would be able to do about 2 gigabits per second at 3 meters. This would allow for, theoretically, the examples they were using was for a smartphone to do a high-speed tethered to AR glasses or something like that. The letter argues that the new category is needed to let devices take advantage of 5G connectivity. In October 2018, the FCC proposed rules to open up the 6 gigahertz band to unlicensed devices. These have not gone into effect. I'm assuming all of the carriers freaked out about that and have made comments and stuff like that. So... Tom, are you excited for very low-power Wi-Fi point-to-point tethering with 2 gigabit per second connections? No, and I'll <laughs> tell you why. Because nothing in my house uses 802.11 AD. Remember when that was supposed to be the hot new thing that was going to get rid of our stereo wires and all that other stuff? And yeah, as it turns out, the idea is sound in theory, and nobody ever uses it in practice. Do you know why? Because nobody cares you can't do it over Bluetooth and you can't do it over wireless, you don't need something in the middle of those two things. So here's basically what this is. All of those people have a vested interest in getting six gigahertz to the market and none of them are seeing it work. And there's a reason for that, because as it turns out, when the government gets involved, you know what happens? You got a lot of stuff you got to do. You have a lot of paperwork you got to fill out. I had a, I saw a great presentation from Chuck Lubashevsky last year at Wi-Fi Trek where he basically said we had to go out and drive 
drive around and determine where six gigahertz interference sources were when we were doing this paper. Because as it turns out, you know, it uses six gigahertz satellites. And we've had stories about what happens whenever people are wanting to open up certain areas of the spectrum and screw up satellites. You can't just send somebody up there to reprogram those things. So they want to make sure that this works. And, and by putting this out there as, oh, well, we're just going to use it over three meters and it won't really affect anything. Now, that what they're really looking for is they're looking for somebody to kind of give tacit authorization for them to start building out this network and sell some equipment that nobody's really ever going to use. When's the last time you needed anything more than 10 feet? It's probably a charging cable because everything else runs over Wi-Fi now. So until you can figure out how to run power over six gigahertz, this is a <laughs> this is an idea that is dead on arrival. Give it six or eight more months. The FCC will open up six gigahertz over a larger spectrum. Um, 5G and whatever else we're supposed to be buying next is going to take over. And this idea will be relegated to, I don't know, ATM lane and uh other bad ideas well and just on that point i mean there are very few examples of direct point-to-point -point, like wi-fi that is ever like just from a consumer perspective i'm thinking like hey i'm going to use this i have my 5g phone that's going to be super fast i want to tether that over wi-fi to my you know to my apple carplay so i can get super high fidelity whatever things anymore um uh, or or you know i'm going to beam information from my phone to my ar glass it's going to be super cool right any direct Wi-Fi to Wi-Fi like connection like that between devices historically has generally been a nightmare outside of something like Apple AirPlay uh, again or, or um, AirDrop or something like that. It makes me encourage that Apple's at least in there. And it makes me think that that I would be interested in the Apple's implementation of what they would do if this got approved. But every other company, I kind of don't trust just because like direct Wi-Fi connections are always a nightmare. All right, yeah. Tom. And finally, we're going to finish out on this. Hey, did you want to know uh, how big Google is in comparing to AWS uh, when it comes to public cloud, Tom? Don't answer. I know you do. How big? I said don't answer. Anyway. How big? Blag. Alphabet announced that it earned $14.21 per share in Q2 on revenue of $38.94 billion, billion with a B, a.k.a. bags of bags of cash. Other revenue, which includes cloud and pixel hardware, generated $6.18 billion in revenue, up almost 40% on the year, so pretty substantial there. On the earnings call, CEO Sundar Pichai said that the cloud unit had reached an $8 billion annual run rate, doubling since February 2018. So this is kind of only the second time we've gotten visibility into direct uh, Google Cloud numbers. Let's compare that, though, to AWS's Q2 earnings. They actually separate out AWS, so we know exactly what they're making from that. And they saw revenue grow 37% on the year uh, to $8.38 billion in the quarter. But missed analyst expectations of $8.5 billion. Boo-hoo, less money, I guess, whatever. So a quick and dirty is that Google Cloud in a year makes less than what AWS does in a quarter. If we're doing the quick and dirty math, I know run rate isn't like an exact thing, but they're willing to put it out there, so I will use that figure. We know that Amazon, the clear leader here, does 4 to 1 sound too high for Google or too low? I think it sounds too low. Like they, I think, like I think they're, they're not a, f a fourth of the scale of. <clears throat> no, no, no. And, and that, that ultimately I think comes down to the fact that Google funds a lot of projects that, mm -hmm. that they kind of give away Google cloud for. And I don't know how they do the internal accounting for those. And literally everybody runs something on AWS. So I, I get the feeling that AWS has a lot of first moves for advantage and they have a lot of gorilla advantage. But ultimately, I think what you're going to see is there's going to be a lot of transition between things. And as 
Google Cloud starts partnering with more companies, that number may come up. Um, do I think that this is the end all be all? Well, look at it this way. Um, Google was lauded for growing as much as they did, and Amazon got their hands slapped because they missed their revenue projection by a couple, what, hundred million dollars? Yeah. Um, yeah, a couple hundred million dollars. Psha, really? Come on. That's like a tenth of an Instagram. Um, <laughs> ultimately, what the problem is, is that when you are when it's it's back in the old days when it, from the networking scale, when everybody compared themselves to Cisco. Well, when Cisco is selling 10 times the equipment that you are, yeah, you're you're going to look bad by comparison. But that advantage will slowly start to kind of level out and you'll eventually find yourself, even if you're not competing, you, there are going to be things that you're really, really good at and that a lot of people are going to want to use you for. I mean, obviously, if I'm founding some kind of project with Google, Google Cloud is the first place that I want to go to, to host it. I mean... You know, it's funny is that we we look at all of these numbers and we see how amazing everything is. And, you know, Google's so far behind, according to these numbers from AWS. And yet nobody bothers to mention Oracle Cloud in the same paragraph. And that should tell you how crazy this race is. I couldn't agree more. And Scott Lester is uh, watching and left a comment on our uh, Facebook thing. And uh, very low power will be about as useful as infrared between devices. Scott, how dare you bring up IR... On this show, this is a place with standards, and I'm disgusted. Uh, that just about brings us to the end of the Gestalt IT Rundown. We're here every Monday, 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time, live streaming to you. You're the IT News of the Week. Tom, people want to find out more about you. Where can they go? Well, I'm uh, always on Twitter as at NetworkingNerd. Um, you can follow me on my blog at NetworkingNerd.net. Also, make sure you check out all the articles I write for GestaltIT.com, where I think next week we probably need to uh, set up the bandwidth transfer between an iPack with an infrared uh, sensor going to an old ThinkPad that has an infrared sensor. And then we'll just transfer pictures of Scott Lester back and forth and see how long that takes. Oh, uh, God, that's, you've just outlined my nightmare scenario. And with that, it wouldn't be the end of the Gestalt IT Rundown without some bad news. That brings us to about the end. So, until the next time we meet, remember, everybody, have a super sparkly day.